Reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 10 to 17. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who were led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I'm, I'm always distracted because I love to know how things work. And last week, I was massively distracted by the piano casters. I just couldn't figure out why the casters at the back stick out to like the way they do. Because it'd be much easier to put the casters underneath the piano, like the front ones, and they'd be much stronger. They wouldn't be so le- the weight of the piano is levering that caster off, isn't it? Yeah, so why on earth do they stick it out and you can trip over it? What's- this was occupying my mind during about half the service. It, it, <laughs> by the time you were speaking, I'd figured it out. But instead of being full of wonder for God during the worship part of the service, I was wandering in my mind and wondering about something on the floor. Hmm. To save you from the same quandary and to save you being distracted while I'm talking now, because I know that you're go- you, you won't be able to rest until you know why it's sticking out, I'd better tell you the answer. Yeah, that's right, Julie, I, I'm going to tell you the answer now. The wheels under the back are too close to the centre of gravity. So when, you, when you're pushing the piano and it hit, hits something like a, a coin lying on the ground, it's just going to stop. But if you're pushing the piano backwards and the wheel is under the centre of gravity and it just stops, the piano is going to fall over with a crash backwards. And they used to do that, I think. And just sticking the casters out just a little bit at the back there stops that from happening because it's far enough away. You already knew that answer. Yeah, there we are. That's what a teacher is for. And so we had them put on specially for that because it gets moved a lot in this room. So when, when the piano was bought, they were underneath which is a typical home piano, and we had them put on the piano. That was my question. Is it a new piano? Uh, no, we've had the, the piano's been here about six or seven years now. Oh, it looks shiny new. Has it been 
So we're still being distracted by this piano. <laughs> I suffer from an endless stream of questions like this in my mind all the time because I've never grown up. You know how a toddler is for always asking why or how. And uh, I, I, it, my mind doesn't stop when I get to church, though uh, usually my questions aren't so low down as that. <laughs> Usually in church, I do manage to question things about God, about higher things. But one question that continuously fills my mind, because I still don't have a solution, is how we're saved. We know Jesus' death saved us from our sins, and we remember that especially at communion. And we know that enables us to reach heaven. But how did it work? Now, you're probably more blessed than me because you don't worry about these things. You just give praise and thank God that when Jesus died, we were reconciled with him. Uh, but I'm not alone. There have been lots of theologians who've, uh, through history who've puzzled over these things. And Peter says even the angels are trying to puzzle these things out. In 1 Peter, 2, uh, 1 Peter 1, it says... The things that have now been told you by those who preach the gospel, even angels long to look into these things. So that comforts me, because it can't be an unholy thing to be trying to figure out how it works. And also, if the angels find it hard, then that perhaps explains why I find it hard too. Now, usually we preach as if it's easy to understand. And basically it is. Uh, We've sinned, which keeps us away from God and keeps us out of heaven because heaven is a place that's perfect because there's no sin, so letting in a sinner like me would spoil it. And Jesus came to show us how to live and then he died to remove those sins. And now the Holy Spirit's in us can slowly change us to live more like Jesus. That's it. Easy. So what's the problem? Yeah, but at the back of my mind, it's saying, yes, 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 yes. Well, that's true, but how does it work? Should, why should the death of Jesus fix our sins? My mind just won't sit still. And the, the child inside me is still saying, why and how? Now, the answer that's found most often in the New Testament is that Jesus redeemed us. That is, he paid a price for us. So that price releases us or rescues us or ransoms us. I'm going to look at a whole load of verses here just to show you how important this theme is in the New Testament. In Matthew 20 and also Mark 10, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served rather, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Romans 3, we're all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In Ephesians, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace. In Colossians 1, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In 1 Timothy, he gave himself as a ransom for all the people. It's all the same Greek word, lutro. Uh, in, one, in Titus 2, 
He gave himself for us to redeem us from all the wickedness and purify for himself a people that is, are his very own. In Hebrews 9, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. In Hebrews 9, he's died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In 1 Peter, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. And in Revelation 5, with your blood, you Lamb of God, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, language, people and nation. Sorry for that big splurge of verses, but I wanted you to see how important, how central that theme is of redemption, buying back, a price being paid for us, how central it is to understanding how Jesus saved us. And so when the theologians got to work on all these verses, they said to themselves, right, hmm, who got the money? Let's follow the money. Where did it go? And what kind of payment was it? What were they paid with if it wasn't silver and gold? So in the third century, uh, Oregon, he thought perhaps the payment must have been made to Satan. Because Satan had somehow uh, enslaved us, or he'd kidnapped us, and he wanted a ransom for us. So the money had to be paid to him so that we'd be released from him. Well, that's sort of an um, interesting idea, but it didn't go down all that well. And in the 11th century, Anselm, uh, he thought about his own society, and he realised that this was a debt. It was a debt of honour to God. Uh, he, in his day, everyone was a vassal with a lord, uh, and uh, even the lords were vassals to the king. And if you dishonoured your lord, you had to pay back. Uh, in the legal terms, it was called a satisfaction payment uh, in medieval law. So if, if you'd done some sort of dishonour to your vassal, uh, to your lord rather, if you'd done some sort of dishonour, you had to pay. You pay with um, doing a day's work, or you pay with money if you had it, uh, or you pay by doing some sort of great deed for your lord. And the, the greater the lord, the greater the, um, the, the dishonour. You know, if you say something nasty to your friend, well, that's just saying something nasty to your friend. But if you say something nasty to an important person, it becomes a little bit more serious. If you say something nasty to someone really important, it's really serious, and the satisfaction payment is much bigger. And so Anselm said, look, when we sinned, we dishonoured God. And he's as big as you can get. And so the satisfaction payment is infinite. We would never be able to afford it. It would have to be paid by someone much greater than us. And Jesus did that by giving not just one day's work, by giving his whole life and even dying for us. And that payment was a satisfaction payment in the medieval system of satisfying someone's honour. Yeah, well, that worked while there were satisfaction payments and while there was honour and vassals and lords. But by the 16th century, when Calvin came along, uh, pe people were just people. They didn't have a lord in the same way, and everyone was under the law. There were laws which said what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And so Calvin was concerned that 
God was obliged to punish sin because they'd broken the law and laws had to be kept in that way. So um, by breaking the law, it was actually worse than dishonouring your Lord because laws, they, they even, even kings had to obey the law by the 16th century. Everyone had to obey the law. The law was the highest thing of all. So you, you, you couldn't just be forgiven for things you'd done wrong. There had to be a payment, a fine or punishment for you having done that wrong thing. And bigger things were punished by death and the biggest thing you could do was sin to, against God. So not even your death was enough for that punishment. So Jesus, a greater person, had to die for us as a punishment and then that sin could be legally paid for. So for him, the payment was a legal fine which in the end God himself paid for us. Now, all that's moved an awful long way away from the New Testament. These theologians have sort of thought and thought and thought, and I think overthought, because by the time we go back to the New Testament, oh, where on earth was all that then? The New Testament describes Jesus' death as a ransom, but not as a payment to someone. I, I, I think we can go back to the earlier theologians. Augustine got it better in the 4th century. He mirrors the New Testament better than these later guys because he says the point of talking about payment isn't to talk about who the payment's going to go towards or what the payment, you know, what the payment's going to do. The point is what the payment achieves. And it also emphasizes we can't pay. We're incapable of paying. We can't rid ourselves of guilt by doing good or by um, re reversing the, the, the evil that we've done. Only Jesus can clear that way for us. We can't pay. And that's the whole point of Jesus paying for us because we're incapable of paying. But Jesus became one of us and died for us. And his death ransomed us from that bondage, that bondage to sin and to death. And that's closer to what the New Testament has, uh, where we hear an awful lot about this bondage to sin. Let, let me give you another splurge of verses to show you about this bondage that we're being ransomed out of. In Romans 6, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, no, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, obedient to the heart, have been set free from sin and you've become slaves of righteousness. So out of that bondage to sin. Uh, in John, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But now, in Romans 6, we've been set free from sin. We've become slaves of God. In Galatians, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And in Colossians, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. There's no mention of who's getting paid, but there's plenty of mention of payment. And the emphasis is on the result. And the result in the, is that we're free. In the ancient world, you could get kidnapped. Well, you still can in the modern world in parts of this world. And then a ransom 
was demanded, a payment. Or you could get enslaved and you could get free if someone paid for you to be free. Or you could end up in a debtor's prison and the only way out is for someone to pay what you owed. And all those pictures being used of how Jesus paid for us. Uh, and there are lots of pictures. It's not a reality, but certainly the result is real. We are free. We're released. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer in that dominion of darkness. We no longer have a yoke of slavery. And how does it work? Well, I still don't know. That's what the New Testament doesn't tell us. Now, Paul did have an, an idea. Paul had an idea which most theologians later ignored. Well, they're still ignoring, I think. He says it works by identifying ourselves with Jesus. That is, Jesus lived and died and was raised to new life. So we can live with him. And when we die, we're raised to new life. If we are in Jesus, in Christ, is something Paul so often says. And we give him our lives and we live like him. And then we, when we die with him, we're also raised with him. Let me give you another splurge of verses to show you that's so. So Paul says in Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's in a new creation. The old's passed away, the new has come. In Galatians 3, For in Christ... Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. So it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And in Philippians, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer enslaved to sin for one has died who has set us free from sin. And in Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. So Paul's identifying himself and identifying us with Jesus in life and death. And that seems particularly at baptism. That's like a picture of the whole thing happening. Uh, you die and you're raised. In Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who've been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried therefore with him at baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life for we've been united with him in a death like his we'll certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his or in Colossians we've been buried with him in baptism in which also you were raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And as someone who was frightened of water for most of his life, I can tell you baptism is a pretty scary thing. You feel like you're dying, but you're raised from death. 
It's, and that's the way Paul sees it. In Christ, when he dies and is raised, we can die and we'll be raised. And it, I think the most similar theologian to this is Irenaeus, and perhaps because he was so close to Paul back in the second century. He said, Jesus became a human so we can join him and rise with him. And Jesus came not just to represent us or just to visit us. He came to be joined with us. And we actually end up being adopted into the family that he is. So he actually calls us brothers and sisters. Uh, and that very closely mirrors what Paul said in Galatians. When the fullness of time has come, had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption. And because we are children of God, he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave but a child of God, and then an heir through God. And that's what redemption is. It's release from bondage to be adopted by God. And it, asking who's paid, where the money's gone, isn't a question that the New Testament intended us to ask. The point of the payment is the effect, that we're released, we're redeemed, we're freed. And, much more importantly, we become joined to our Redeemer. We become part of his family. The question that should be on our minds isn't how does it work. What we should be asking is what should we do? And for that, we need to go back to where we were as toddlers just like the toddler is always asking why and how, we teach toddlers three magic words, which Julie will repeat with me. Thank you, sorry, and please. We teach toddlers those three words, and they are the words which we need to know. We have to say, thank you that you've removed sin by dying for me. Sorry that I have sinned, and please help me live like you and for you. And if you can only remember one, just remember, sorry and mean it. <laughs> you know, when you teach children sorry, and they go, oh, sorry. Well, I've said sorry, haven't I? And we have to teach them, no, 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 no. You have to say sorry and mean it. You then have to try not to do it again. And that's why it's so difficult for adults to say sorry. It becomes harder and harder as we get older and older because saying sorry not only implies you are wrong, oh, I'm never wrong, it also implies you have to change and that gets hard. We have to put on youthfulness again to follow God. We have to say sorry like a child and mean it. So at the end of all that difficult theology, we end up just going backwards, backwards in time to the earliest theologians and backwards in our time to being toddlers and learning, actually, it's very, very simple. 
the earliest theologians mirrored the New Testament most successfully and turned out the answer was Jesus came to join humanity so we could join with him. He lived and died and rose so we can live and die and then rise. And what we need to remember is to say sorry and mean it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent Jesus, your son, to die for us. And we don't know how that fixed our sins, but we're thankful that it does. And we're sorry that we did sin. And please help us to follow you and learn not to do it again. Amen.